You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. EYL University is the biggest online platform for education, but it's much, much more. It's actually a community. Our private Facebook group has over 8,000 members and 20 infinity groups. The students teach themselves just as much as the professors do. We have weekly webinars. We have over 100 past webinars. You get access to MG The Mortgage Guy's Real Estate Blueprint. You get access to monthly financial planning calls with yours truly. You get access to our monthly group chat investment calls and much, much more. So. Go to EYLUniversity.com right now and take advantage of our limited offer, blowout sales, 65% off of the annual membership. EYLUniversity.com right now. All right, guys, welcome back. EYL, this is an episode that I'm looking forward to. Me and Troy both looking forward to. So um, when I first got introduced to the gentleman, Troy Carter, uh, it was on Clubhouse. And there was, um, was, I was on there as a panelist I got brought in, I think Wall Street Trapper brought me in. Somebody brought me in. And it was a conversation with uh, a bunch of people. I think Meek Mill was in there. That was a big night. Swiss Beats was in there. Yeah, yeah, I remember that night, yeah, yeah. And, um, and Troy was in there. And that was the first time I actually um, heard about Mr. Carter. And, uh, you know, I forgot what the conversation was about, crypto, something like that. So, you know, I said a couple of words, but I was mainly just listening. And he really piqued my, my interest because he was talking about art. And we all know that Swiss is a heavy art investor. And, um, but I, you know, there's something that we haven't really covered before. So mm-hmm. I was like interested in just learning about art. And um, from my understanding, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think he's the one that actually got Swiss into art. Is that true? Mentored him into that? No, actually it's funny enough. Swiss was the Swiss actually put me onto art early. Um, but before I started collecting, so I, I, okay. I went to his house out when he was living in the Catskills and he had this incredible collection. I didn't even know what, what, who anybody was as he, as he, he named them off. But um, I started probably collecting a few years a, after that. So, yeah, so that was the Swiss put me onto a lot of stuff. Okay. What was he living in the Catskills for? Yeah, I'm like, that's, I thought you were gonna say like way, when he was living in Jersey. That's all the way up. That's all the way up there. I was, I was, I was in the city, and uh, and Swiss said to come out to see him, and I'm thinking it's gonna be, you know, just a a, a short ride out, and I go all the way out to the Catskills uh, to, to to see him. Shout shout out to Swiss. So so then I started to do my research, and um, I realized that he's a true Renaissance man. Um, so founder and CEO of uh, Q&A, which is a tech and media company. Um, but before that, founder and CEO of Adam Factory. So he managed uh, Lady Gaga and John Legend. Mm-hmm. Might have trainer. Might have heard bunch. of them. Yeah, yeah, a few people you might have known. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it was Spotify, um, head of uh, global creative, creative services. 
um, entertainment advisor for the Prince Estate. Mm -hmm. That's big. Um, and he's an investor as well, an early investor into a couple of companies that you might have heard of. <laughs> Uber, Lyft, Dropbox, Spotify, Warby Parker, Blavity, um, Gambit Media. Shout out to uh, John Henry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and FaZe Clan. That's crazy because uh, I found out about FaZe Clan from my son. All the gamers. A, shout out to Nasir. He's a huge gamer. I and, found, um, I found he, out about it from my sons too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the FaZe Clan, that FaZe Clan is serious, man. I think Bronny's part of the FaZe Clan. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he's also a trustee on uh, the Aspen, Aspen Institute, um, LA County Museum of Art. Um, he's an art collector. And then he had early start with Will Smith. And Diddy, well, I'll get into the wait, whole we'll thing. So, wait, wait, we left one out. He, he, was, he was named by, by the big boss herself, Oprah Winfrey, the Super Souls uh, 100 list of influencers and visionaries. Yeah. So congrats to that. So when I was finding out about it, I'm like, yo, we got to get him on the show. Earn Your Leisure is the big, <laughs> the biggest. The big show. So I'm like, we got to get him on there. But I didn't really know if he had a social media. He's kind of a hard guy to track down. So um, shout out to the good folks at, at uh, Nicole. Art, thank you, yeah, Nicole, <laughs> and uh, Black Effect from from connecting the dots on this. So this is going to be a fun conversation, educational conversation. So first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. No, listen, I'm I'm happy to be here, man. I, I, I'm loving what you guys are doing. So you know, when they hit me last week, I'm I'm definitely definitely wanted to be supportive. This is great. I appreciate, appreciate it. That. I appreciate it. So let's jump let's jump right into it. Um. West Philadelphia, born and raised. It's very fitting. The playground. <laughs> if anybody fits that line, it is definitely you, Mr. Carter. So, so, so you got an interesting life story, man. Let's let's start at the beginning. So, you you were signed to Will Smith's record label. Yeah, when when I was in um, in ninth ninth grade, we me and my two best friends started a rap group, and um and and. It was this thing where uh, one of one of the guys said, "If we meet Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, they're gonna give us a record deal." So we just, you know, would go down to their studio constantly and just wait outside to try to, to try to meet them. And then one one day, we we were able to. So and and you know, quickly found out how terrible we were. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but you didn't let that ruin the 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 networking. Uh, chance that you had because you still started working with Jeff, right? Yeah, you know what, like, you know, what what, what I tell my, 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 my sons and, and my daughter is like, you just never know what path life takes you on. So it's like, sometimes you just gotta go with the flow and when things don't necessarily go your way, it doesn't, necess it doesn't necessarily mean it's going the wrong way. It's just not mm -hmm. going the way that, that, that you planned on it going. And um, so, you know, meeting Will and those guys, it, they took me under their wing and um, and I really was, was able to learn uh, the business from Will and his manager, uh, James Lasseter. Yeah, yeah. So that that's interesting. So you, you stay in contact with James uh, Lasseter and um, that leads you to doing some party promotion. Yeah, that was so that that was like my hustle in Philly, like so where where. Um, I got lucky because a lot of the guys in the neighborhood sort of. They 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 protected me from having to do other stuff. So so like guys who used to hustle and and you had stick up boys from my neighborhood. You had you know guys who hustled. You had you know people who did all all kinds of things. I was I was able to do what I love, which was music, and just um, and and I had people in my neighborhood. This was like. 
the the 1990s version of GoFundMe was just people from the neighborhood give you some money to throw a party. So so I started throwing parties. I bought Wu Tang Clan to Philly for, for their first time. Um, Jay Z's first time. Um, Foxy Brown, Kim, Biggie. So like all all of those shows in like the like the mid 90s. Uh, it was me and uh, and uh, my big brother Charlie Mack out of Philly that was doing a lot of those shows. That's a Charlie Mack. That that name is legendary in Philly and definitely in the music industry. Yeah, so, so that, that was my hustle. So then you transitioned to working with Diddy. How did that come about? I actually met I met Puff because I was Big was a no show for one of my concerts, and um and it was actually my first big show, and I was throwing it on Penn's campus, University of Penn's campus, and Big was supposed to go on, and I got a call from his manager, who was Mark Pitts at the um and telling me that Big was shooting the video for Big Papa and couldn't make it down. And I got into an argument with Puff on the phone, um, <laughs> cursing me out, I'm cursing him out. We, they, they still come down to Philly for the after party. And, um, and, it, and Puff was like a legend and hip and like, but not big at that time, he wasn't huge. But in terms of black culture, and entrepreneurship. If you were in the music business, you wanted to be Puff. And 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 seeing him at that club that night, we all went out to an after party. Um, it, it, he he basically just commanded the room, and I, I asked him for an internship. And uh, he said, you know, get me that girl from behind the bar's number, and that'll be your first job. And so that was that was my first job. I got I got Puff the number. Yeah, you have it by Yo, any means necessary. Could have been he could have sent you to, to get a Philly cheesesteak, but it, that was easy. It's crazy you say the big story because I, I, I don't know if you see the albums that we have in back of us, but um, that was the we first have big song. First yeah. thing I saw was, the, was was that it was one of my favorites of all time. That's crazy. So you paid you paid him, and he just didn't show, huh? No. Well, what Puff did, he told he told them to give me my money back. And then for the next show, they gave me a discount on the next show. And I probably did maybe three or four Biggie shows after that in Philly. So let's let's fast forward a little bit because you have an extensive resume. So I want to make sure we cover everything. Um, so how did you get involved in management? Because the story is pretty legendary. I guess she was down on your luck and um, Lady Gaga comes out of the sky. So how does that story come as far as the management and finding uh, Lady Gaga? Well, well, Eve gave me my first shot at management, and and so with Eve, she was um, I knew I knew her from Philly, and I was helping her actually find a manager because she she was kind of looking for a new management situation, and she just gave me the opportunity to do it, and so I worked with Eve for about seven seven or eight years, and then. Um, and I, I sold my the company that I that I built. Um, I sold it to a company called Sanctuary out of London, and um, and at that time we were managing Beanie Siegel, Eve, Freeway, a, bu a bunch of acts, and we sold that business. I moved uh, to California to to work for the company that I sold it to, and um, and it and just wasn't a great experience. You know, after about a year and a half in. I'm like, okay, this isn't the right fit. And and that was my first experience of learning about sort of culture and 
how, like where where money can't buy you certain things. And that was mm-hmm. my like my first real check that I got. And um, but it didn't make me happy. And and and, and I always had this thing. As crazy as it sounds, it was it was unimaginable for like for me to even make a hundred thousand dollars in my like like just because like my goals was like if I could make a thousand dollars a week I'd be set you know like that was my thing I I had in my mind and I remember writing down um just all my goals as a kid and then like every year I would just write new stuff and and I had this goal to to be to make a million dollars by the time I turned 30 and for Father's Day of my, I think it was 30, when I was 31 for Father's Day, my wife and my mom gave me this gift and I opened it up and it was this scrapbook. And my mom had saved every single letter that I wrote to myself as a kid. And in that, I accomplished every single thing, almost everything that I wanted to do from like, a, like right literally is unimaginable. And, but what I noticed, I'm like, it didn't, it didn't change my, my life in, in terms of happiness. So, because working with artists made me happy, working on music made me happy, being part of the culture made me happy and working for this company didn't. So I, I, I went and tried to buy the company back. They wouldn't sell it back. Company ended up um, going, their, their company ended up going bankrupt. I was able to get out of the deal and when I started over, I put all I put the money I made into the new company. I put the money I, uh, I made into buying a house. I bought a couple cars. Uh, you know, I did ev- everything that you, you uh, I blew it pretty much. And mm. then Eve had fired me right uh, at right when I started the new company. So I had to start all over from from scratch, essentially. And so around that time, somebody, a friend of mine, uh, introduced me to a new artist that he was going to fly out um, to audition. And, it, and, it, and that artist was, was um, Lady Gaga. Can, I, can, can, we, can we unpack that a little bit yeah, as far as the, uh, selling the company? All right. So you build up a management company. This, this is Irving Wonder you're speaking of, right? Yeah. The company? Irving Wonder. Okay. Yeah. okay. So you build, up, you build up the management company and... All of the the uh, Philly artists, Freeway. You said uh, Beanie Siegel, yeah, legends. Yeah. Um, so you got a nice thing. Who's on the roster? Is Philly is is Freeway? Yeah, Beanie, uh, Oskino and Sparks. So all of the stuff that was at Rock, oh, the whole state property is on the bill. State property, yeah, exactly. So we had the the whole state property essentially. We had Eve as well. Um, we managed Khalees. Um, then we partnered with Tony Davis on Nelly, um, Flow of uh-huh. Three. Yeah, so that was that was the roster. Okay, so you got a nice thing. I want I got a lot of questions about management. My first question is, um, what is the percentage that managers get paid? Is like five percent of everything that they book for, or is it higher than that? Like, what, what's the? How does that business model work? It's usually ten to ten, somewhere between ten to twenty percent, depending on the size of the artist. So if it's a developing artist that you're starting from scratch, usually it's twenty percent. If you're coming into a superstars business, um, usually it's around ten percent. So you're at the height uh, in the early two thousands. We're talking Nelly, 
the height of his of his career. You're talking about Eve, the height of her career. So those percentages changed because at the, when you when you met Eve, was she just starting or had she put out an album already? Uh, she was just starting. Okay, so then she probably fits in that scale of that 20 range. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I think Eve was probably, Eve was 15 because I was just starting and it's- um, oh, okay. <laughs> I would have done that one for free, by the way, because she's given me an opportunity. But um, so, yeah, so that was 15. So it's 15% roughly. And just on everything that you can get for them. So like endorsement deals, shows, whatever, anything that you're responsible for. Is that correct? Yeah. So the manager kind of sits in the center of, of like you think of it like a hub and spokes, essentially. So the manager kind of sits in the center and manages the relationship with the record companies, the music publishers concert promoters, um, brands that may pay for endorsements. And um, so basically you get, you is a commission-based business. So you commission as the, the, the client makes money essentially. You know, um, the downside is that if the client doesn't, doesn't make money, you don't make money. But what's good is that the incentives are aligned at the end of the day. So it's not like you're making money when the client does, doesn't make money. So it's in your best interest yeah. to make sure that they're making money. Because right. then you make money. Yeah, or, or you don't have a job. Right. Did Did you go into when you created Irving Wonder? Uh, did you go into it saying we're going to build this to a point so that we can sell it? And when you did sell it, what was the type of valuation that you put on on the company? Yeah. I, so I never, I never did. I didn't do it for knowing that I could go. I could even build a company. To be honest with you, like, I like for me, it was uh, the company was me managing Eve out of my living room. You know, so with no employees or anything like that or whatever. So it wasn't even it, it wasn't even a, an, an incorporation at that time. So it just was more of of let me let me protect her. Let me just see what we could build together. And um, it was a legendary manager, Chris Lighty, who gave me some office space um, in New York where he said, you know what, come up and learn from us, you know, if you want to as well. And that, so that's what I did. And I didn't even know, and even once we built a, co a company and started managing more clients, honestly, I didn't even know you could sell a management company until um, Matthew Knowles, B uh, Beyonce's <laughs> uh, dad approached me and he had sold his company to Sanctuary and he was building out their urban division. And he approached me about, um, about buying my company and me being his number two over there. and. I, to be honest, I didn't know how to value the company. Um, we didn't keep great records. We didn't, you know, they 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 said uh, we need to start doing due diligence, and this is pre Google, really. So you know, we you didn't really have a way to even know what due diligence was. So it's like, and in hip hop back then, we would take cash. So because I didn't want to, if, if if somebody was booking a show. I, I couldn't trust that the guy in Memphis was gonna not pay me when we showed up or whatever. So it's like, or you know, we we took cash and, and everything. So we didn't have a lot of great records. We, you know, it was so they trusted us on a lot of stuff. We had to pull together a lot of stuff. And um, and and to to Beyonce's dad's credit, uh, Matthew Knowles, he basically helped us determine what evaluation was, and he. He honestly changed my life and, and my family's life in terms of being able to give me an opportunity 
and um, to, to, to be able to know what success looked like and what it felt like. And, and it, for, a, for a black man to make another black man a millionaire is, is just a, is a, is a, is a beautiful thing. Um, that is true. Okay. A, a couple, a couple of questions about that. So artists, are you signing like a manager? Are they signed to, um, like a year, two years, four years? Like, are they signed or is it just like a handshake agreement? And as long as things go good, but if you're not happy, you just leave. Cause I see people leave their managers all the time. And I wasn't sure if there was like contracts in place where you have to stay with this manager for a period of time. Yeah, it, it depends. Even I worked together for, like I said, almost eight years. We never had a contract. And, you know, it was just handshake. And um, and I know a lot of people, like, I, I don't think Latifah and Shaquem have a contract. They've been together for 30-something years. And, mm-hmm. you know, Will Smith and James, you know, sort of sa- same thing or whatever. And, um, you know, there's a lot of acts that I know that, you know, that are like that. And so where you you just have that relationship. And um, and then sometimes there are contracts and those contracts can be as short as one or two years or they could be, you know, up to six or seven years. So it just sort of depends on on the relationship. But there's no there's no real set rules to it. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you, you sell the company. But you sit there and I'm wondering the level of regret. Was Did that sit in with you or was it, you know what, my family's life has changed now financially or was there regret in selling it knowing that this was my baby that I let go and I don't like how this is going right now? So so I, I sold, I sold two, two management companies and both times I had seller's remorse. And because mm-hmm. um, people t- uh, always talk about buyer's remorse and, and I learned with, about seller's remorse because you know where I'm an entrepreneur by, by nature, um, is is something about me where I like to control my own destiny in terms of, you know, just what I do, the the, the decisions that I make. Um, honestly, a lot of my personal identity is 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 tied into me being an entrepreneur, and and it felt like I had a boss, and that that really messed with me like just from a pride standpoint of, and I'm not saying anything's wrong with that at all, because I feel like, you know, it's, it's everybody needs to do what they, 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 they have to do to make a living. But for, for me, what it was, was that I worked really hard to build these companies. Um, I, I put a lot of pride and love into the work that I do and into the clients that I represent. And for people to treat it like a, a number or a transaction after it's done, that really bothered me. And it's like, cause what I realized was working with other companies, it was all about money for the, with those other companies. I've never, I've never done anything purely for money, never. And like for that, that, that to me just, it just didn't sit right with me. How much did you sell it for? Um, the first, the first company we sold for, uh, I think four, four and a half, something like four and a half million for the first company. No, that's interesting because it's like, for me, that's a risky proposition for somebody to buy. Cause it's like, you're dealing with artists and their careers could be over at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And 
if there's not even like a contract in place with these artists, I mean, you're just buying a relationship, but how do you value a relationship? Because that relationship could be over tomorrow. That's that's real talk. And, um, and, you know, and that's the credit that I give Matthew for, you know, for being able to bet on us. Um, And and the, the other piece of it too, is that, they're buying, you know, a lot of the, the companies who buy management companies are buying cash flow, you know, and, and it's a good cash flow business. So that's so the companies are essentially buying cash flow. Yeah, based and at that time, the artists that you had were smoking. So the, the, that, that helps. Right. But when it starts to slow down, I guess, and this is like 2006, when, when you realize, like, all right, this is not working and it e-fires you, things are starting to turn real quick. I, I read somewhere that. You might you might have been facing eviction, so th- yeah. this is what what what's going through your mindset at that point now? Fear, <laughs> you know, uh, fear, and um, you know, being sort of partially partially paralyzed, you know, um, temporarily. Of uh, my my world is falling apart, you know, because I, you know I went through a real hot streak um, where nothing could go wrong. And then all of a sudden, everything's going wrong, and it you know, and it turned and it and it felt like a spiral, and it felt at like where things were were out of my control, and you know, you're dealing. I, I was dealing with embarrassment, I was dealing with shame, um, dealing with depression. You know, I, I you know, um, a, a, a family now at the you know at the, at this time, so you know, you could take certain risks when you're 22. It's like, but, you know, mid thirties and, and, and you got, you know, at that time we have four kids, we have five now, but, you know, having four kids and tuitions and mortgages and car notes and employee responsibilities, you know, it got really scary, really quick. And, you know, luckily, you know, I was able to, to come back from it, but while I was in it, it, you know, it was a very dark time. Why, why did she fire you? She, you know, I think she just had other aspirations. And um, and she and I, it's funny, because Eve's like my my sister. Um, it's funny, a friend of mine, Tuma, Tuma Basa, who I work with at Spotify, literally just texted me um, like an hour ago, um, uh, sending me an article, because it's the 20th anniversary this week. Of, of of Eve's, uh, I think at the, the Let There Be Eve album, and it's crazy that it was twenty years ago. That but, is crazy. <laughs> yeah, crazy. It was twenty years ago. But you know, so she and I were incredibly close, but she didn't feel like I was focused enough at that particular time. Which mm-hmm. you know, maybe she was right, but in my mind, I felt like I could get it to the next level. Um, but she felt like she needed to do other things and she decided that, you know, she wanted to, to explore other managers, which mm. I didn't, I didn't understand it at that time. It was like a divorce cause you know, a heartbreak, you know, cause yeah. it's because of the relationship. And, um, and I was mad as, as you would normally be mad under those circumstances. And especially while I was going through all of like the terrible stuff, you know, like, really mad but i just didn't i just would not let the anger consume me man and like and that was a big piece of it it was a big piece of it so for the second run when you when you get uh lady gaga and john legend 
what did you do different? Did you do anything different as far as the management style? Or I'm pretty sure you <clears throat> were more respectful with money this time around. And um, how did how did that change? Like you you had money, you lost it, but then you got an opportunity to, to you know get a rebirth. So how did, what was different the second the second wave? I, I think I was I was different. You know, I think in in a, a couple of different ways. It's like um, humility for sure. Because it's like, you know, uh, you nothing wakes you up like cold concrete. And so <laughs> it, it just it was a very humbling experience, to say the least. And then the other piece of it was um, a friend of mine introduced me to meditation. And that's what really helped me get through that hard situation. And um, and and it was just exercise that that I learned during meditation where basically it's almost like you you imagine yourself out of your own body and you look back at all of your best experiences and your worst experiences. And what you realize in, um, in your best experiences, you really didn't have that much to do with it. So, so you could plan for certain things, but you never could plan for specifics. So there's no plan in my life that I'm going to meet Eve, that I'm going to meet Gaga, that I'm going to meet, you know, CEOs or, you know, you, it, it's, this is when grace comes into play and this is when faith comes into play. And so what it taught me through that experience was I didn't, I, although I could take, I, I tried to take credit for a lot of my own success, a lot of it is just grace too. And you and being prepared for it, so I gotta have faith that great that I'm gonna uh, be met with grace again, and 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 when and I when you have that level of faith, it shows up for you time and time and time again, and you'll be tested on it, and and, and to see you know whether you run scared again, but it it, it continually continuously shows up, and so that you know so I think. Those were the two things when I when when I when I did meet Gaga. I had no money. She really didn't have money. Vince, who introduced me to her, didn't have money. Jimmy Iovine at Interscope was going through his divorce, so Jimmy was going through a tough time. So I think that you got four people all you know sort of fighting for their lives and and <laughs> all going through tough stuff. So you know you can't fall off the floor. So there's nowhere else to go but up. So we just hustled and did our did the work. Yeah. So at this point, it's almost like the rebirth, right? You 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 did it with Eve. You came up together. You starting over. Now you're back in the clubs. You, you're booking gigs, and I'm I'm trying to fix. So we got Vince involved who introduced you. You got Jimmy Iovine. Akon ends up signing her. Do you bring him bring her to Akon? How does that work? No, Jimmy Jimmy Iovine um, brought in Akon to um, to as an executive producer. Because Akon okay. was a fire, and he had a producer named Red One that was signed to him, and um, and Red One did uh, Bad Romance, Just Dance, Poker Face, uh, you know, ton of ton of our big records. So um, so bringing Khan on board just was you know that that was a blessing as well. So how quickly does that ramp up with Lady Gaga Ooh. before it becomes like, you know, who she is like now? Probably, you know, um, from the time we put out her first single to the time it really broke was a little over a year, I want to say. 
you know, um, it just was, it was a grind, you know, at those moments where you just felt like nothing was happening. Um, you, you know, you were, I, I felt like I knew the music was great and I felt like she was a superstar, but when nobody was responding, you know, it's like you, you're questioning yourself, like, okay, like, is this not as good as we think it is? <laughs> no, it, it is. Let's, you know, so we just kept, kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. Until, you know, finally, you know, we got one radio station and I think it was Toronto to play the record. Then we got Buffalo to play it. Then, you know, you sort of saw saw the dominoes start falling. So your job as a manager um, was more than just finding opportunities. It's actually helping to push them. What are you doing as a manager? Is it everything that needs to be done, utility, like anything that needs to be done pretty much, reaching out to radio stations, is that the job of a manager or no? You do it. The job of a great manager is you is to do whatever needs to be done to ensure the long term sustainable success of your artists. And mm. and for me, that could mean carrying bags on the road sometimes. That could be helping to set up gear in a in a club, or that could be negotiating with the CEO of Pepsi. You know, so or, or it, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that could be all within the same week, by the way. So it's like Sounds you like do it. whatever you need to do. And um, but it's just you 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 set I always felt like I gotta set the tone for the level of work ethic so that everybody else can 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 follow. So at this point, you're you're a talent manager, but you're also building too, right? Because now you're building the, the Adam factory, if I'm not mistaken, right? That that's now it's not just music. It's also, it's film, it's television. Is this happening at the same time? No. So Gaga was managing out of my living room as well. <laughs> um, that's a prestigious living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Different, different living room. Um, it, but never, never, needless to say it was a living room and it wasn't a company and it was, um, it was managing her. And then, as she started to, to grow a little bit more, I needed to hire somebody to oversee like ticketing for me to make sure that people got into the clubs. And then I had to hire a, a road manager because I was getting too many emails and phone calls to stay out on the road. And so I had to p- put somebody on the road. So that ended up turning into, after a couple of two, three years, you know, 30, 30 people and then, you know, other clients and other, other verticals. Um, it probably took six years to, you know, to, to get into other verticals, um, like the investing and things along those lines. But it sort of started, everything start like it always starts with this little seed. And then you see that seed germinate, you know, and what I tell founders that I work with and I, you know, or entrepreneurs that, that I coach, like Facebook was built with one line. It was starting that line of code. So it wasn't newsfeed and ad sales and, you know, Instagram and WhatsApp. Mark had to write a line of code. And, and so what's that first step that you can take? And then that second step that you could take and sort of, you know, build it brick by brick. And, and that's, the, that's, the, that's the way I know how to build businesses. So let's so, talk so about investing. How did you get into investing? Um, especially, like, are you an angel investor? Like AF Square Investments. What what exactly is that? Yeah, so so um, um, it, it, the AF Square stands for Angel uh, Adam Factory Angel Fund, and um, and we just call it the AF Square. But uh, for AF Square, that actually started from just me getting the opportunity to invest in um, in a startup, 
And I didn't really know about startups at that time. Um, I, a friend of mine introduced me to a guy who had invested in the music industry. And this guy was like a pretty big um, tech investor. And he asked me for my advice on the music industry. And I said, okay, if, if I help you get out of the music industry, will you help me get into tech? Because he, he had invested in some bullshit record label. And I'm like, you got to get the money out of this. <laughs> and uh, he introduced me to a bunch of people in tech. And, um, and that sort of led to me starting to have a little money. like, And not a lot, by the way. So I wasn't investing no, like millions of dollars. You know, I started off with investing thousands of dollars and putting it here. And it just was some surplus money that I didn't want to blow. Because last time I blew my money, so I'm like, okay, I, like at least I can, you know, invest and learn right now. So worst case scenario, if these investments go to zero, I built some great relationships and and learned a lot, but nothing that was going to keep me up at night, you know, in terms of the size of the investments. So, okay, so and that's how you got into the Ubers and the Lyfts, and just like it, just a domino effect from there. Yeah, so Uber was, um, they were doing, they were only in San Francisco at that time and they were doing, uh, they had just started doing like black cars. And, um, and a, a friend of mine called me up and said, I want you to meet the, the, the CEO of Uber. And I never forget, we were dri- I was driving um, down Santa Monica in LA and I'm on the phone with him and he's telling me about the business and um, and I'm like, how in the world are y'all going to afford to buy, you know, thousands of these cars? Like, because I'm thinking they were going to have to buy, you know, individual cars. And as he was explaining what they were going after, just made sense. Um, I ended up investing that same week, I want to say. And um, and then when, and when I invested in Lyft, they were called, they weren't even called Lyft. They were, um, they were called Zimride. And they were a company that took car, uh, kids from like college campuses to dorms and so so like carpooling and they mm-hmm. later became Lyft but they were at that time they were a small I think a 16 16 million dollar valuation um, somewhere around there so long, long way from now so you still have the stock like did you keep that ownership all the way to the when they became public and now you have yeah, stock? Right, right up uh, both companies right up to to IPO. One one of the other companies you invested in was, was Spotify and I know you were you were at Spotify as the head of creative services. Number one, what does that job entail and do you are you still invested with them? I know they have you as an advisor now. How does that work? Yeah, um Sp- Spotify um I met Daniel years ago but like um and we I invested right before um, but it was before they launched America and became very close with Daniel, the founder. And, um, and he and I would just talk all the time, just, uh, really, cause he was his, his thing was Daniel is a guy that can see 10 years ahead. And, and those are the kind of founders you want to invest in, by the way, because it's like c- certain people and the, the record business thinks about, think they live quarter to quarter and they think about what's happening right now and they make decisions based on what's happening right now. And most of the people who are uh, at record labels, they don't own those record labels, they work there. So mm-hmm. their incentives aren't 10 years down the line because they might not be there. So when you got somebody like Daniel who was in his 20s 
And he's looking at building this company that, you know, he'll be at through his 40s, 50s, probably. He's looking at what the future is. And his frustration was the music industry wasn't moving fast enough. And you had a lot of people who weren't putting their music on streaming. Um, you had a lot of people who were pissed off because they're like, we make money off of CDs and downloads. You know, how dare these people try to make give us fractions of a cent for streaming and what they didn't understand at that particular time was streaming is the best thing to ever happen to music because you get paid every time people listen to it now. So it's not like back in the day where like it, you that Biggie record you got in the in, in, behind you, it, it, I, I listened to that so many times, but Big only got paid that one time I bought it. Mm -hmm. Streaming changed everything. It, it becomes this annuity. And I came on board as somebody to help translate that to, to the music industry and, and educate the music industry on why this new technology was going to be transformative to the way we do business. And I also had to translate internally at Spotify is like, how do we build a team within Spotify that understands um, the goals and motivations of, of, of musicians and the business around them that, 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 that support those musicians. So I kind of served as a translator between, between those two worlds. How, how much resistance did you face from artists? I know I hear a lot of times when they, they talk about the percentages that they get off of a stream. In the early stages, you know, I could imagine they're looking at my money stream has now changed. What kind of resistance did you meet? So, so no, no exaggeration. My, my, my first week at Spotify, um, I, I, I went to do a presentation. I told the team to pull together some, some, some numbers. And, um, and our first meeting, we, we were doing a meeting with Maverick Entertainment, which is like Sal, uh, who manages The Weeknd in French Montana and, G. Roberson, who manages everybody in the world. Yeah, and, everyone. Um, so, like, it's, a, it's their whole staff meeting. Guy Osiri, who manages Madonna, U2, all of them. So I go to their staff meeting, and I, and I pull up um, a presentation to show them how much Spotify paid out to all of their artists on streaming that year for the last X amount of years. And then how much they're going to make over the next five years as well. And everybody's jaws dropped because they're like, where's that money? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, cause you can't blame. Cause I wanted to, I want, and I, and I did this presentation for a, a ton of different managers, but what I was showing them was we pay out a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, like one artist on the platform, it was one year this artist grossed. I don't know what the artist got, but the artist, the, but I know we paid out close to a hundred million dollars. So I'm like, so and that's not, that's not Apple music. That's not all the streaming combined. That's just, Spotify. so any, any sort of gripes has to gripe should be with the record labels and the deal structures that the record labels have with, 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 the, with the artists versus what Spotify pay, paid out to artists. And so that was part of the education process. And that's how 
we ended up getting a lot of artists onto the platform because they started seeing the importance of it. And then also we shared a lot of data. I'm showing you how to reach your fans. We're showing you where, where, where your fans are, how they engage, how they engage, engage with your music. And then for the older legacy artists, you know, part of the conversation was I, I showed a lot of the artists because Beatles wouldn't put their music on the platform at one point. And what we did once we got the Beatles onto the platform, we showed them um, and, you know, in, in their in the states, I think it was 85 percent of or some big percentage of people who were streaming the Beatles were under the age of 30. So these are people who weren't born. So you got new fans now. So if you're a legacy act and, and you're, you're thinking about generations and you're thinking about how, how do you leave your legacy, you you have to be on streaming if you want to reach younger consumers. So that was sort of, you know, just the education process we helped put together. So um, a couple of different things with that. So the, so the record labels wasn't being transparent and the money that they were receiving and they were kind of like keeping the money. That's mm-hmm. what I'm assuming from mm-hmm. the conversation and not informing the artist and I guess kind of just making up reasons why they wasn't getting paid as far as like, we had to spend this money on marketing. No, and no, no, and stuff like that. But to be clear, they, they weren't stealing the money. It's the way the deal structures are, are work with record labels and artists. So, so the money was coming in, but if you only get a 16% royalty, and that means 80, 84% of that money goes to the record label. And then out of that 16% royalty, you're paying producers, you're paying mixers, you know, you, 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 all, all of your advances are getting, have to get recouped. And any money that they might have lost on you in the past, they got to recoup that back as well. So, and, and so the way that they, 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 the deals are structured aren't structured in a way where the artists are receiving windfalls. And especially so we, we, the, the other last little piece, those deals were justified back in the day when you had factories, trucks, plastic CDs, printing mm-hmm. press, you know, thousands of employees had, who had to, you know, get these things around the world. All you got to do is send me a file at midnight before the album comes out. You know what so I'm they're, saying? They're, they're still factoring those costs when in this day and age, those costs don't exist. They don't exist. They don't exist. They don't so we interviewed we, we interview Styles P, a legend, Not and um, he I said mean, that years. That's my man. I love Styles. Okay, he said that. He said, um, you know, he's been in the game for what twenty five years, something like that, and he said that um, he can't tell you how streaming works, and he said that he would assume that most record label executives can't explain how streaming works. Can you explain how streaming works? Like, as far as like, can you, is it possible to give a fifth grade education on like, okay, if you stream this, you get a one thousand penny, songs equals a thousand five songs cents equals or one dollar. Like is that possible or is it too complicated? I guess this, the simple way to put it is um, there's, there's a pool of cash that record labels participate in um, from subscriptions. And, and, and advertising revenue. And it's not really, so, so Spotify doesn't actually um, pay per play 
Um, it's not as simple as getting paid every time is it's played. Record labels are paid out of that pool based off a of market share, and then they divide that, and then they pay pay their artists based off of that the, the pool that they receive. So um, Universal might have thirty seven percent market share. Sony might have twenty five percent market share, uh, and let's say. Um, uh, Warner has 15% market share, and then Merlin, that represents a bunch of independents, ha have uh, uh, the remaining market share or so. They then break that pot up, and then they distribute the revenue based off of their artist royalty structures and, and, and the amount of streams that their artists received. Mm, okay. Okay. So what, what royalty percentage would be like ideal in this day and age, right? So you said like the 60% when there was all those other costs, what should an artist go into to make sure it's a, it's a respectable deal as far as royalty percentage? It depends on how much leverage you have. And, um, you know, the, the more, usually the less leverage you have, the worse the deal is going to be. Um, mm -hmm. The more money you take, the worse the deal is going to be. So, so, so it, it's kind of figuring out um, what type of leverage you, you want to go in with. So like a lot of artists that, that record companies are signing nowadays are going in with a lot more leverage. So they're getting better deal terms because record companies don't want to take risk anymore. They want to sign what's hot. So if, if, if you're going in hot, then you, you're negotiating ownership of your master's you negotiate and, you know, a 50-50 joint venture deal. And some of the smarter artists are going in negotiate and saying, you know what, I don't really need that much of your money, but I want you, I want you to help me um, with international and I want you to help me on some marketing. So I'm just going to give you a 15, 20% distribution fee and, that, and that, that'll be what you take. And then I'm taking a rest essentially. Uh, when did you leave Spotify? Uh, maybe about two, two and a half years ago. But yeah, almost, uh, almost three years ago now. So, so were you, were you there when they started to make a strong push in the podcast? Yeah, yep, yeah. Were you involved with that at all, or? Um, lightly, Court, Courtney Holt, um, who's who's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Courtney ran podcasts for for Spotify. So um, Courtney and I worked together when he was at Interscope and then he went to run um, a division at MTV and then Maker Studios. And then he and I went into Spotify around the same time. But I was an investor in Gimlet Media. And, um, and so part of just a Gimlet conversation and work, working closely with those guys. Spotify ended up buying Gimlet, correct? Yes, yeah, uh, Spotify bought Gimlet. Um, I have a couple questions about art, but before that, Phase Clan, how, like that's I want to talk about that a little bit because when I saw that, it, it's like it's interesting. I wouldn't necessarily assume that they needed um, angel investing or venture capital investing because they're a gaming crew. But um, so, how did that work? Like, can can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, my 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 son my son Troy Junior um, sent me a. He said, "Dad, I'm going to work for this company." I want you to check them out to see, you know, if if you if you if you like them, because um, he he basically was uh, helping them figure out some of the music initiatives that they were working on, and um, and he plays games. He 
he's sort of perfect kid that live, lives between gaming and music. And, um, and he sent me some information their deck. And I'm like, okay, this sounds really interesting. I said, and I know the CEO, he used to manage Kid Rock. I said, tell, <laughs> tell, tell Lee Trank to call me. And so when Lee called me and he told me his vision, um, I ended up um, making the investment from there. And, um, and then my youngest son, Mike, uh, he, he's a big time gamer. And when, cause I went home and I asked Mike about it and he knew everything about FaZe Clan. And what I figured out from my conversation with, with him was I said, okay, I get it. They, FaZe Clan gets culture because they felt like Wu-Tang Clan to me. Like, where, like <laughs> when I looked at like ASAP crew and I looked at mm-hmm. Wu-Tang, I'm like, FaZe Clan nailed that. The cultural piece of being able to build out a crew and then like people are picking their favorite members of the crew. Um, you, you so they, they're doing merch. Phase clans doing merch drops. You know that are selling out a million dollars and like 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 this. So I understood right away what they were doing culturally, gaming wise. I'm not a gamer. Um, I don't know. Like I I understand it a, a lot. You know, just from um, what I learned over the last few years, but. I'm not a part of the culture, but I understood what they were doing culturally. That's kind of like a um, retired gamer. <laughs> yeah, it's I, it's interesting because I see parallels as far as like what we do. So, um, like the financial literacy movement is like you on Clubhouse, you know, like that's all you see on Clubhouse is everybody's talking about this financial literacy, like Bitcoin or uh, NFTs. I want to ask you about that, but real yeah. estate stuff like that. So it's like for earn your leisure. I feel like. It's it's become a cultural phenomenon, and it's building. I love it because we never, we like, we never talked about money as a culture. Like Mm -hmm. we talked about aspiration, about you know what we wanted to buy, but we never talked about money as a culture. And I think that's the reason why a lot of first generation people um, go go broke. Come, who come from our culture because we don't have the lessons and, and networks and, and cheat codes in terms of understanding how, how does banking work? How does interest rates work? How, how does uh, uh, in, uh, investments work? How do ETFs work? Like we don't, we, those aren't culture, those aren't conversations that we have amongst each other. And, what I noticed, like, I started having some conversations, man, with, th- this is the beauty of, of, of the, the one good thing I could say that came out of the Trump era was it scared us so bad what was happening in the country in terms of anti-Black and, 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 and seeing these um, national white nationalists, you know, walk through these college campuses with with tiki torches and 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 polo collars, and that a lot of black people who were competitive and in our business started really pulling together and talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And I've had some conversations, man, where I'm like, I've learned so much from 
Jay, Jay-Z, from Puff, from Big John, from, from like you, Jay Brown, like you, like you, you, these are the types of conversations that we should have been having 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But, you know what I'm saying? But we, sh- we, sh- but we were taught coming up that it was like, almost felt like zero sum. And it was like this competitive thing. It's still good to be competitive, but is it, but it's not zero sum anymore. It's, it's we're going to compete and then learn from each other. We're going to compete then learn from each other. It, no, nothing was better when when Jay Brown and I like it was it was twenty managers competing for uh, to sign Shakira, and everybody flew to Barcelona within two days. So so when we get off the plane, I get off the plane. And it's the guys holding up the signs with every manager's name in the fucking industry that I know. And it's like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only person here. But it boiled down to me and Jay Brown. Jay Brown beat me. But I want like I'd rather see it go to Jay. Yeah. But his other stuff that I beat Rock Nation on that they would rather see it come to me. They put me in the stance, the stance, um, apparel deal, stance socks and stance apparel. They put me in stance. I, I put them in Uber. They put me in, um, a, a bunch of different deals. I put them in a bunch of different deals. That's our network. That's what we do for each other. And that's the, that like that, but, and, and then even down to conversations of mental wellness around this, Mm-hmm. How do you how do you manage your family around this? Because the because the financial success is one thing, but how do you ma- how do you manage your headspace as you as you're dealing with this? Because people, my my cousin said to me, this, this is one like it's my my like and we're one of my close cousins who who we've been through like a life together. He was laughing at me one day because I, I, I think it was I was having a, a, a argument with my wife about something, and he said, "You still got these problems with all this money? Like that? Like that's that was his comment." I said, "You think things go away? That's you think you, he, he didn't listen to Big? More money, more problems? No, it's just it's just it's different. You know what I'm saying? Like." The difference is like certain, you become a bigger target. You become a bigger target, but I still deal with the same problems with like my kids that other people deal with with their kids. I probably still have some of the same conversations with my wife that other people might have with their wife. I still have the same conversations with a doctor that other people will have with their doctor. Like, so you're still a human being, but as a lot of times as black men in these situations, you feel isolated and alone as you're navigating it. Because if I, I can't call some of my friends in Philly and complain about certain things when they might be dealing with a mortgage issue or, you know, or whatever else, like it's certain things that I might want to like, that might be a real problem to me that they might look at me like I'm crazy for talking to them about, but nevertheless, it's still a problem. So I got to talk to somebody about it. So it's good to be able to talk to people who have 
who are living it at the same exact time that could help or, or might have lived it right before you that could help you get through it. That is a fact. That is a fact. Um, all right. It's shame isn't about- aware of that. Not to, not to cut you off, but I think it's important because embarrassment and, and shame will hold us back from sharing that with other other brothers and sisters. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um it's something like you said, it's important to speak about because no matter what level of life that you're on, you have to have peers. And then sometimes you don't have the peers or your peers won't communicate if they feel like, you know, they don't want to, you know, let people in on their business or they, you know, and it's yeah. it's like, you know, unfortunately, as black people, the you know, the majority of people are not at an economic level where their peers with millionaires yeah. or multi-millionaires, like, you know, majority of people are not peers with that. So um, like Nas said, my tax bracket, not enough blacks have it. Yeah. It's just reality. Yeah. I think I, I heard you say it earlier, the cultural conversation is changing. I like that because it is, it is like the, what you were talking about with uh, Jay Brown and talking about with Big John, those things were happening at that level. But I feel like you, that group of, of guys that we looked up to, the Jays and the Puffs, they showed us indirectly, but I felt like nobody told us, like gave us the blueprint. We could watch the blueprint, but I feel like now the cultural conversation is changing where the blueprint is actually there for you. Now That's it's just about fun. Clubhouse. That's, that, that was one of the things I loved about Clubhouse. Like where, you know, I think is you know, like with any platform, by the way, you're going to have posers and bad information and, and, you know, and, and specialists who aren't specialists, but, there's a lot of good information on there, man. Like, you know, and a lot of conversations that, you know, in even a conversation that we were referencing earlier, you know, with, with Meek and Swiss and, and, and Trap and a few other people or whatever, that conversation to me was like, I, I talked offline, like, cause I got, I got a group text with, um, with, uh, with, uh, probably 15 people who are usually on, on on clubhouse and it's it's a it's such a beautiful thing man for when people to have a question to be able to have a place to go to ask it without being embarrassed and for also for people to be able cuz like you said it may not it does cuz it's not just this per, like I don't have as much money as Jay-Z, you know, or, or, or Puff. I'm, I, hopefully I'll get there. But, you know, just the reality is it's like they're, they're billionaires. They're legit billionaires now. With, 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 but I still feel like I can have a conversation with them and, and ask them questions and learn from them. You know what I'm saying? And same way, it could be somebody who might, they might only have, I talked to some of my friends who might have a few thousand dollars left over that they could, that they could play with, that they're like, what should I do? And, and a couple of those friends, I put in deals with me. I'm like, you know what? Put that little bit of money, put that in Triller. Put that in this place. Put that in this place. You know, like, so, because it, it, it's access a lot of times. So it's not just about the amount. It's just about access sometimes. Mm, that's a fact. Yeah. Um, can we talk about art 
I want to talk about art. Um, how? Uh, yeah, because we haven't really spoke about art at all. So, art is intimate. This is the question I asked you on Clubhouse. Um, I, I I was saying like because we we're heavy in stocks. Um, so you know you buy stock, you buy Apple at one hundred and twenty dollars. It goes to $240. You doubled your money, right? Like you kind of know Apple's a good company. You can look at the bottom line. You can look at the revenue. You can look at, you know, new releases, product lines, and you make an educated decision that this is a company that will probably go up in the future. Mm -hmm. I feel like art is just really subjective though. It's like one person could look at a painting and say that that's terrible. Another person can say that that's the best painting in the world. And they both could be right, right? It's like it's it's all subjective. So, for how do you value art? How is art valued? It seems like it's extremely complicated to know if something's going to be good or not. Like, how do you look at something and say this is a good investment to invest in? By the way, stocks are very subjective too, <laughs> because when you okay. look at price to earnings ratio on on on, on some companies, or you look uh. at, at you know, it's it's. It could be very subjective. Forty x, thirty x. Yeah, That's yeah. True. It, it could be very subjective, and and you know, I think a lot more information is there when you're a publicly traded company in terms of the transparency. But like you know, one analyst may say this this stock is terrible. Another analyst might say this stock is wonderful. You know, and that's why you got you know short sellers, and you got you know people who are taking you know big, big, big bets. So, so I think it's, it's some similarities there for sure. Well, art is, it's a lot like stock in terms of information because like, because information is, 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 is everything. So, and so, and art's not as complicated as people think when it, when it, when it's just access to the information is what is what, what's closed a lot of times. So the way it works is that, say for instance, um, there's, it's funny, I could turn around right here. I got a couple, like, it's some, I don't know if you can see it, but it's a few paintings right there. So okay, yeah, yeah, I see, yeah, I see it, yeah. So, so those are, that, that's a brand new artist. Um, uh, Austin, Austin Azor is, is the artist's name, who, I think his work is fantastic, really great work, brand new artist. Um, the person, the dealer that I, that I bought it from is an incredibly talented um, dealer who really is great and has a great track record for discovering young artists um, who end up becoming you know, uh, successful artists. And so, um, so a lot of it is I like the work, but just because I like work doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to invest money into the, in, into the work. And because it, especially when it's expensive, um, his work in particular wasn't that wasn't um, that expensive. But if you're, I got friends who are, who who, who are going to who they they say okay. I got twenty five thousand dollars. I'm gonna uh, that I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna buy that painting. What I'll tell them is, okay, if you got twenty five thousand dollars to spend on a painting, I'm gonna send you over thirty artists within that price range um, who 
have great work and who have a great trajectory um, in terms of what their career looks like. Because the $25,000 that you're getting ready to spend, you can spend it if you like that artist, that's great. But it's probably never gonna be a resale value on that. And in fact, you may not be able to ever sell, sell it again. But you know, because it's like, it's, it's very expensive for, for artists that no one's ever heard of before. And so you got market makers who bait from, from collectors, museums, certain galleries, certain curators, um, certain uh, art critics who can make, make or break artists essentially. So within that network, they're basically saying, these are the next generation of, of artists that we feel is gonna sort of graduate to certain, certain levels. So it's like music where you have a gatekeepers that's pretty much stamping something like this Bobby Schmurter song mm -hmm. is the song that radio should play. We believe in it. We're going to push it. That's a little discouraging though, because it's like artists. They... So the only difference in, in it though, right, is where the consumer and music sort of have the last choice. Like in the gatekeepers and and our and and um and and the music business can only get it but so far, but then the end of it the consumer has to buy it, mm -hmm. and 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 the art and art the art market specifically is different in the sense of as as a collector. that has influence, you also can influence price and interest. So if, if Swiss says he goes on Instagram and says he's collecting an artist, that artist, a lot of people are gonna pay attention to that artist. Mm -hmm. If Thelma Golden, who runs Studio Museum in Harlem, goes on Instagram and says she likes an artist, is lights out for that artist at that point. If Gagosian Gallery says they're signing an artist, their prices on that art, that artist prices just double automatically. And so as a collector who has a bit of influence, I want to make sure that prices don't go below what I paid. So I'm going to make sure that artists, if that artist's work comes up for auction, you you want to make sure that 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 price goes more at the end of the day because now all of the work in your collection from that artist just went up. Yeah, but but even in that space, right? To get into a museum or to get in some to in some of these galleries, I feel like sometimes the artist has to raise the price, obviously because if they're in there, there's going to be the commission fee, and that's kind of like I think what the premise of what Swiss did was having no commission, right? The hundred percent of the money goes one hundred percent to the artist, so. I mean, is it kind of a double-edged sword where it's like I have to do that in order to be in there? No, so you really, so the, so is, is, is levels, right? You don't mm -hmm. want to ever go in, you don't want to, you, your sole goal, you, you want to be in great collections. You want to be with people who aren't going to flip your work to auctions. You want to be with um, people who are going to lend your work to museums. You want to be in museum collections. So, and in order to do that, you don't want to overprice your work. So 
you want to be at a reasonable price where good collectors don't feel like what I just told you that story about why would I buy this for that when I could get this for that. So it's like, so you want to go in with a good entry level. Once you get to a certain point and you're in those collections, then you, most people end up going with a gallery that could sort of take them to the next level and get them into even better collections or more, or, or, um, more global collections or, or, or more diverse collections, uh, you know, at the, at that point. And, and the value and the work ends up getting pushed up at that, at that point. And so there is some prestige that comes along with being with a Gagosian gallery or a Zwerner or, you know, or Hauser and Wirth or one of those big galleries like that too, who are going to push so, up. So for me personally, Let's say, uh, you know, I, I'm in stocks, real estate, and I'm looking to diversify my portfolio and I want to get, I want to start investing in art. Say I have a budget around, like like you said, $25,000. $25,000, I want to invest in art. Um, what steps should I, like, what, what what do I do? So, so I, so me personally, I don't invest, I don't invest in art. That's a big thing for me. So I'm a, a like, I'm a collector. and And that's the difference because it's like, you know, being somebody that collects my, you know, I, I, I hold long term. So it's like, so I'm not, I'm not buying the work to sell the work. I like the fact that it grows in value, by the way. Well, like, even, well, not, maybe not like I'm, I want to trade it, but I just want to hold something like buy and hold. Like I want to hold the stock like for 20, 30 I bought years. bought that artwork for and one million. I, yeah. Like I just, you know, fuck, I, I just want to buy some art that's going to appreciate. Mm-hmm. How do, how, what, what should I do? If if I'm buying art to appreciate, I'm I'm looking at young artists, you know. If and that if I'm if my budget's twenty five thousand, I'm probably looking at artists in the two two to five thousand dollar range, and those and those are the artists that I'm collecting. Um, I'm looking at curators who are in with incredibly young artists you know, at the, at the very beginning, because young artists will, when you're there in the beginning, when they're selling $5,000 paintings and you're the person that's buying those $5,000 paintings, when their works are 50 to 250,000, you know, those are, those, those are collectors who, those are artists who are definitely going to be looking out for you in the future for the most part, when you can find that, you know, people who are, are, are loyal like that because they appreciate it when, they try, when they're trying to keep their lights on. And there mm-hmm. are artists that I bought their pieces at five $5,000 in LA at you know a little gallery. And now it's like you know, their pieces are crazy right now. Like I, 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 I couldn't even buy their pieces on primary market now. I'm like, I don't even feel right. I'm like, hold on, this is where they're at right now. But it's like, um, those, those, but those are people who 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 appreciate it. But it's guys like La- Lario Say Mensa is a curator out of the Bronx who it has an incredible eye. He's there super early, and Larry puts me on to some artists when it's like before they even have a gallery. You're buying work from the studio. Mm. And what I and what I've been doing is putting all my friends who uh, who are taking collecting seriously, who want to collect, 
we we got some guys who built in some great collections who just never collected art before, but they're like, you know what? They, they're having fun with it. They're buying uh, young artists at, d- at great prices and they're watching those artists uh, appreciate now. Let's go. How you feel about NFTs? Um, I think it's, I think it's, I think right now it's like super interesting because it's like, oh, is oh, way overhyped, but it's it's absolutely here to stay in terms of how we think about collectibles and and um it's funny i did a call earlier today with um uh with with the prince estate and and we were talking about you know just nfts and i said you know what? I said, really i said the way to think about it is this is you know is another is another merch category for us and and mm-hmm. so just look at it as simply just as another a, another category um but i think for artists it's going to be great in terms of being able to track your works um thinking about uh, uh authenticity of works um to think about how uh, about royalties and sort of um making sure that you still participate financially along the way um, I, 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 but I love what's going on. I love that it, it's educating people on the space. That's the part I like about it the most. Um, but I, I, but I just, I just hope people don't get stuck with a lot of bad goods that won't actually increase in value. I'm glad you brought up the the Prince Estate because it's something I definitely wanted to talk to you about. Um, obviously, you're the entertainment advisor. You said that this is one of the things NFT is one of the things you're looking into. But what are you doing in that role? Is it are you the one that is making sure that the music and the catalogs are being distributed and licensed properly? Um, and how did you come into the role? Yeah, uh, I got a call for it'll be four years ago this month, actually, um, from one of the attorneys who worked with the state at that time. And they were making a change from the previous um uh, people who oversaw the estate and asked, would I be interested in, um, in speaking to, uh, Comerica, the Comerica bank was, uh, were just started overseeing the estate. And would I be interested in working with them as an advisor to, um, on the entertainment assets? And, um, and the, of course the answer is like, put me on what, 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 what time's the flight? And, um, you know, I went, Flew to Minneapolis, did a presentation, and um, and ended up work started working with them about four years ago. But it's been amazing. So my job is just to figure out, you know, what's the long term strategy around the entertainment assets. So from documentaries to you know music releases to partnerships, music licensing, and you know, um, you know, at some point being able to turn over a uh, 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 clean, organized, um, beautiful asset over to his family members. Probably. So I'm thinking four years ago, that's around the time that Jay put out the, the song on 444 when he was talking about the estate. So were you a part of that deal when he, when the music got uh, licensed to title? Um, I, I was part of the deal and, and, and helping to mend the, J the the J the title estate relationship. I'm like, oh. we, 
can't can't have fights in the family, you know. <laughs> no one wins when the family feuds. No one wins when the family feuds. That is a fact. That is a fact. Well, Mr. Carter, it's a pleasure. Um, thank you, thank you for joining us. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. What would you like to uh, tell the people? Any initiatives or anything you would like to let the public be aware of? No, look, I, I just love, love, love what you guys are doing and will continue to support. And um, let's just keep, you know, just the, the financial literacy out there for, for, for the culture, the, for, for our people, and, um, and continue to, to, to push each other to the next level. But love what you guys are doing. Appreciate it. Appreciate, appreciate it. Troy, housekeeping item? Yeah, shout out to everybody on Patreon.com. That is our Proud to Pay program. Obviously, tier five members, you have access to the number one school for financial literacy. That's EYL University. Number one in everything as far as business, entrepreneurism, and pretty much anything you want as far as careers in, 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 the, in the world. So shout out to all the earners that are part of that and everybody that is supporting our merch on EYL.com, uh, earnyourleisure.com. Uh, we Appreciate you for all your patience and all your diligence in, in this time of getting the merch out to you. So thank you for all your support. Yes. Thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.